Genesis 42. I would imagine you have noticed just how complex and interrelated all the aspects of life are, especially um, some major events that happen, like an oil platform experiences a sudden explosion, and there's a catastrophe, and it affects, it affects not only all the sea life and all the animals and the birds in the Gulf, but it affects coastal communities, and it has reverberations that go around the world. Or like there's an economic crisis in Greece, and all of a sudden there is a financial implications throughout the world as a result of just one financial problem in one country. There's a tornado in Oklahoma or an earthquake in Haiti or a hurricane that goes through New Orleans. And people around the world are affected by these events. In fact, as a result of some of those events, people have actually moved to central Texas and, and life has changed. And when we face these things, and they, and they happen with frequency, because now in the World Wide Web, we're aware of things that happen almost instantaneously as they're occurring. And I'm, not, I'm sure you've asked this question. I have, like, God, where are you in the midst of this? How in the world could you possibly be working when, when all I can see is tragedy and future heartache and so many unknowns and brokenness? And, and you're even, maybe even in your quietest times, you probably wouldn't go public with this. You're just like, is, it, is God even possibly working in that? And then, you know, at times we, we get glimpses. We get glimpses even in the midst of these great tumultuous events. We just see at times God's hand working ever so slightly and maybe perhaps in just, just a faint way there. But yes, we indeed could see it there. But then it's, it's just back to all the heartache and the tragedy and the, the unknowns. And that's how we function. That is life. Life, we only get glimpses of a mysterious, majestic, all-powerful God. And oftentimes we don't actually even see how it all connects. And that is one of the reasons why God has given us the Bible, the scriptures, especially the book of Genesis. Because in the book of Genesis, we don't get just glimpses of God. We see his like master plan being unveiled. We see him moving throughout. We come to conclusions that are bed foundational and bedrock to our faith that, yes, indeed, our God is not only good and great, but he's in control and can be trusted. And that is one of the most important reasons why you want to spend good time in Genesis 42. Because if you do not have a good foundation in Genesis 42, life just remains a mystery. And you keep asking that question, can, can, I, can I really trust God? And is he really at work in all of these difficulties and heartaches and problems? Well, if you've spent good time in Genesis 42, you've got a foundation for your faith. Because Genesis 42 gives us an inside look at the multifaceted work of God in the lives of his people and even in the events of the world. And as we go through this chapter, as we're making our way in the study of the life of Joseph, I want you to look carefully and see if you can see how God is fulfilling his word and his promises. Look and examine and see if you can see God addressing heart issues in the lives of his people especially those who will play a critical war, role in the foundation of the nation of Israel. And look and see if you can see God at work in the process of renewing and strengthening the faith of his servants, especially Joseph and his father, Jacob. You remember when we left off last week, verse 57 in chapter 41, the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. 
Now, verse 1, chapter 42. Now, Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, why are you just sitting there staring at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Through the nomadic Internet, Joseph, Jacob had heard that there is indeed grain in Egypt. And the famine, just remember how, remember how God had given the dream to Pharaoh? Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine? Well, the famine had hit hard. And it wasn't just in Egypt, it was a worldwide famine. So even people all the way up in the north are experiencing the effects of famine. Now, in America, we're so sheltered. We got grocery stores everywhere. You walk in, you got food in your house. In fact, some of us, you know, we got to have food about every hour. But you need to understand what it would be like to be in a famine. In a famine, there's no food and no food to feed your animals. When the animals and they, they either you kill them so you don't have to watch them suffer or they just suffer and they eventually die with your livestock gone, your sheep, your goats, your donkeys. When they die, when they're sick, you become sick because there's still no food to eat. And when you become sick, you go through the slow experience of death. It's whether through starvation or you experience some sort of disease and there's no means for you to ever get healthy and you die. And that is what Jacob is saying. Boys, what in the world are you doing sitting there looking at each other? You know what each other looks like. You've been doing this for a long time. Get going. There must We have to do something. We cannot just sit here and die. By this time, Judah has returned to the family. That great you know, icon of virtue. Remember him? Genesis 38. He's come back to the family and he says, it's time for you boys to do something. Stop sitting on your hands. I want you to go down to Egypt and get food for us. And he says, verse, verse 3, it says, Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. Before we move further, I want to point out something to you. God often uses trouble to bring about transformation. Problems are God's regular way to perform his deepest work in our souls. It's in difficulties that, that God addresses sin issues in our life. We learn the beauty and the strength of perseverance as we rely upon him. God teaches us what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. We learn the power of prayer. We can even learn the power of praising God in the midst of our storms, but they have to come in the storms. It's in the midst of hurt and heartache that God teaches us our deepest lessons. I, I do not like hard times. I don't like heartache. I don't like to be hurt. And yet it's in those times that I see God doing a work in my life, stripping me from all earthly support, fixing my eyes on Christ, on God himself. That is how God works. He works in the midst of the storm. Now, Jacob is not about to let the boys take their young, the youngest brother, Benjamin. You remember, there's Joseph and Benjamin. Benjamin is the last, last son he has left of his beloved wife, Rachel. And he is not about to let these boys take him. He sends, he sends the ten. Jacob is still playing favorites. He believes that he's lost Joseph. I think at, by this time, after 20 years of hearing the story about, well, some wild animal must have taken him, that he knows that his boys have lied to him. And there's something far worse than they did, they did to him, and he's not yet been told. 
And so he will not let Benjamin go down, but he sends the boys down. And so they go and they make the trek all the way from the land of Canaan, where they are kind of, okay, here's the Mediterranean Sea. They make their way down. They're going all the way to Egypt. They make their trek to Egypt. And in verse 5, so the sons of Israel, remember that was Jacob's name that he had been given, Israel. The sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. And verse 6, now the scene shifts. Now we're in Egypt. Joseph, who has now been given by Pharaoh the number two command, he is in control of everything. You cannot lift your foot without Joseph saying, okay, I think I'll let you do that right now. He is, he is, in, he is in complete control. Pharaoh has given him that signet ring. He has clothed him. He has given him that gold necklace that represents great vesture of authority and power. And Joseph is in control. In fact, Joseph apparently, as he is... Just, you know, as he conducted where he saved 20% of all the grain each year, now he is in charge of its distribution. He apparently takes careful note of which people from foreign countries are coming into the land for grain. He apparently has made himself overseer of that in verse 6. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. And he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. He saw his brothers. He saw these ten guys, sun-beaten. Remember, the Canaanites were hairy guys, right? Remember? They didn't shave, okay? But the Egyptians, man, you know, they were keeping Gillette in business. You know, they were always shaving, right? And remember, they'd, they'd shave their head, right? They're, I mean, they were hip. And then they're like, wait, I don't have any hair up here. And then so they get these wigs and they put those things on, right? Now, that's the Egyptians. But they're clean-shaven these Canaanites, these, these Hebrews there, these guys are all hairy. They'd stand out in a crowd. They'd smell bad. And Joseph sees him, sees them, and he recognizes, these are my brothers. Twenty years later. He recognized them, but he makes this decision. He disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly and said to them, where have you come from? And they said, well, from the, from the land of Canaan. To buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. And verse 9, Joseph remembered the dreams which which he had about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of the land. I mean, just imagine what this must have been like. In In a situation like this, There would be all these flashbacks. Your mind does funny things when all of a sudden two world realities collide. There would have been flashbacks. He would remember the time where he had had the dreams and he told his his brothers and his dad about them. Like, you know, those sheaves and and I, she stood up and and all the other sheaves bowed down. They went ballistic on him. What do you mean? We're going to bow down to you? And then, wait, wait, it gets better. I have this other one. Remember the stars and the sun and the moon? They're all bowing down to me. He would remember instantaneously with this cloak. Remember the, the garment that his father clothed him in that, that basically set him apart as the prince, as the guy in the family. It prevented him from working. He would remember his dad giving to him. He'd remember when the boys, remember they stripped it off him. Here comes the dreamer. Remember that? They'd remember, he'd remember when he was thrown into that pit, that cistern. He'd remember them hearing, saying, let's just kill him. His own brother saying, let's just kill him. He'd remember when they decided, no, let's make money off him instead and sold him for 20 shekels of silver. There would be the flashback of when his hands were bound. He was actually sold into slavery by his own brothers. 
He'd be probably chained up or roped up. He'd be maybe with other slaves. He'd be, he'd be looking back. He'd be crying out, well, no, no, stop. And there would be that final glance. And maybe seeing his brother, one of his brothers, with a hand of silver, the 20 shekels they made off the boy in his hand and, and hearing them laughing like, <laughs> how about the dreamer? All of this would be quickly flashing through his mind. All of this he's coming to terms with as he sees his brothers now for the very first time. Let me remember, remind you of this principle. What God has revealed, God will accomplish. What God has revealed, God will accomplish. He revealed those dreams and now they are starting to come to reality. It wasn't just like uh, God gave him a dream that they're going to bow down. It, it has the idea of implications. He would be the one that would have not only great power in their life, but great power in the world. That they would recognize his authority, that God was doing something very unique in the life of Joseph. And it, it, everything God has revealed, God has fulfilled. That's true of the famine. That's true of the years of plenty. That's true of these dreams. That is always true. Everything that God has revealed in the scriptures, from the promise of coming of Christ to the fact that he's come to the fact that he's coming again, everything that God has promised, he will accomplish. Well, Joseph now, he recognizes his brothers. And really, he is, he is at a point he could do whatever he wants. I mean, think about it. What an opportunity to retaliate. You can do everything. Here are the boys. They're all these guys. They're these grown men, his brothers. They are down on their face before him. He could just say, you're spies and I'm going to execute you. He could, he could throw them in prison and have them starve. He could send them back with no food. And to do so, they would face a lingering death. All of this is in his power. And yet, he's not, he's not going to kill them. He knows they're not spies. But what he is going to do is he is going to use this as an opportunity to find out where they really at. Who are these boys? What has God done in their life? What has God done to them and to bring them to a point where are they truly receptive to God and in love and in awe of him? Or are they still those hardened boys that would be willing to throw their own brother in a pit and sell him into slavery? He's going to find that out. He's going to find out what happened to my brother, Benjamin. You see... One thing that I think that we can conclude is that at this point in his life, Joseph has forgiven his brothers. If he hadn't, you know what he'd do? I think he'd make his, their lives miserable and they'd die. But there's something different about Joseph. And it was revealed to us, remember, four different times in Genesis 39, four different times it stated, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. And the Lord gave him the ability to forgive his brothers long before they ever make their appearance in Egypt. That decision was made. And let me tell you about forgiveness. Forgiveness forgets. Now, every time we talk about the subject of forgiveness, uh, very, very difficult because we've all been hurt, right? Some of us have been hurt tremendously. Some of you have been divorced from a spouse. Some of you have been maligned. Some of you have lost your careers. Some of you have been disowned by your family. And when we talk about the subject of forgiveness, this is no light matter. But forgiveness is one of life's and one of love's greatest expressions. And it's one of life's greatest experiences to be forgiven. 
Now, how do you, you're going like, well, gee, Grant, is that a kind of, that's kind of a stretch. How do you know that Joseph really has come to a point where he forgave his brothers and, and that he's actually forgot? He's intentionally set aside all the hurt that they did to him. Well, remember, remember last week when we saw that even during the times of plenty that he had been he'd been married and he had two boys. And remember in verse 51, Joseph in chapter 41, Joseph named his firstborn. Anybody remember Manasseh. And what does that mean? God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household, all the pain and all the heartache that came from my father's household. God has allowed me to forgive and to forget. By the way, the only way you'll ever be able to forgive is through the power of God, trusting in the presence of Christ. But God had brought Joseph to a point where he had can say Manasseh. In fact, he named his firstborn son Manasseh. God has allowed me to forget. You know why? Because he always wanted to be reminded of God's power in his life to bring him to a point where he could forgive his family for what they had done to him. Well, that's what we find going on here. And by the way, on, on forgiveness, this is, a, this is a great struggle for us. And yet, think of when Jesus came to this earth. Jesus not only spoke about forgiveness. Remember, I want you to love your enemies. I want you to pray for those who persecute you. How many times should we forgive? Up to seven times? No, 70 times seven. In fact, do you remember when Jesus was dying on the cross? You know what he said? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You see, God wants us to experience forgiveness because it is life's and love's greatest expression. And God has sent his son to actually pay the penalty for our sin that we who believe in him can know the joy and the love and the life that is found in the forgiveness of Christ. And we can experience life to its fullest. That's why God has sent Christ. He wants us to know the power of love through the experience of forgiveness. And when we know that, we have the ability to actually express it to others. And right now, before we just kind of keep moving, who is it that you truly need to forgive from the heart? Who are you holding bondage to? And by the way, you think that you're, well, I'm going to make them pay. But you know who pays when you don't forgive? You do. It contorts your heart and your life when you fail to forgive. Well, Joseph had made that decision and God had enabled it to happen. I will forget and I will forgive. Well, he's back in this situation here and we're back in chapter 42. He recognizes his brothers. He has these flashbacks. He accuses them in verse nine that you are spies. You come out here to try to scope out how you can take economic advantage of us. You're spies. And basically what happened with spies is they would be executed. So they are totally fearful. Well, no, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Verse 10. Then they said to him, oh, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. And look at verse 11. I've underlined it in my Bible. They said, we are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. And yet he said to them, no, but you've come to look at the undefended parts of the land. But they said to him, no, 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 no. Your servants are are 12 brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today. 
So he starts getting an answer about what's going on with Benjamin, his, his youngest brother. And one is no longer alive. And yet, he's standing right in front of them. It seems to me that what has happened is that they had told this lie so much that they had come to believe it, that Joseph was indeed dead. Now, now Joseph accused them of being spies. They, the Egyptians were very suspect to the people that lived in the land of Canaan. They were suspect of them. They actually considered them wild and uncivilized. They had various epithets that they used for them. They called them sand dwellers, speaking of their great agricultural land that they had to work with, or throat slitters. And that's what they referred to them as. They were just, that was their slang derogative terminology that they referred to these people. To call them spies, that would, that would be perfect, perfectly fitting. But they said, we are honest men. We are just. We are right. We are true. And Joseph is asking the question, are you really? Are you really honest? Let me tell you something. Testing reveals identity. Testing reveals who or what something is or who you really are. I don't want to bring back a lot of bad memories, but how many of you took geology class? Anybody? Ah, come on. I'm not the only one that took geology at the University of Oregon. Okay, there we go. Thank you. All right, I got a few folks. We took geology class. Remember geology class? Now, for some of you, just even bringing this up, you know, for a few of you, this is like, oh, yeah, that was really cool. I like playing with rocks. And for many of you, I'm bringing back a very loathsome experience. You probably remember the final exam where you had all these rocks in front of you, and you're like, ah, and you're like crashing them together and all these bad memories. But let me just tell you, in geology... There are a series of tests that you can conduct that you can identify any single rock or mineral. Okay? I mean, there's the, there's the appearance test. You can make observations on its appearance. You can see how transparent a particular rock is. Remember the hardness test? Okay? That's what some of those little tools are for. That was to determine the hardness test on that Mohs hardness scale. Okay? And then there was also that streak test where you can take a little bit of powder from that rock and you can make a streak and it has colors. And that, you do those tests and you've got a field guide and you can identify pretty much any single rock or mineral you come across. Pretty cool. And aren't you glad that I told you that now after you got a D on your final exam? Okay. That's, well, you see, tests actually reveal identity. And that is true in our life. And that is also true with Joseph and Jacob and these boys. Joseph is going to issue some tests. We're going to find out What's really happened in your life? Where do you really stand with God? What do you really think? What have you done with my brother Benjamin? What have you done to my father over these many years? Tests reveal character, and character is developed by tests. And so he is going to issue some tests. They are making this plea that we are honest men. Are you really? He says, no, you know, I don't think so. I think you're spies and you've come here, verse 12, to look at the undefended parts of the land. But they said, oh, no, 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 no. Your servants are 12 brothers in all. We are sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is with our father day and one is no longer. And Joseph said to him, it is as I said to you, you are spies. And he said this, verse 15, by this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Ooh. And he says, send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. We will find out. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And if you are spies, if you're lying, you're dead. That's what he's saying. 
So he says, I'm going to give you some time to think this over. Verse 17. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Now, this putting him in prison for three days, this is actually really a good move on Joseph's part. Imagine the emotions that he had to feel. He needed some time to be able to break away and to actually think, reflect, pray, and consider what exactly is going on. He, he gives them opportunity to think about that. So he's giving them this test. He says, you are spies. So after this time of thinking it over, verse 18, after three days are over, Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live. He says, I'm going to tell you how you can live. Pay attention. Do this and live. And then he says a statement that is shocking and perhaps revolutionary in this whole experience with his brothers. He says, literally, Elohim, God, I fear. This would have blown them away. Remember the Egyptians, they had 2,000 plus gods. Here's the guy who is running Egypt. He's decked out, and he makes this statement. Do this, I'll tell you how to live. And he says, Elohim, God, the supreme God, the creator God, the sustainer God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Elohim, I fear. There would be well, what? How, you fear the God of our fathers? You fear Elohim? They would have no category for this. This would have thrown their lives for a complete frenzy. They're the ones that are having mental breakdown in this part. They would never expect an Egyptian to say that he serves, reveres, and fears God. They're, they're totally at loss here. You know what's happening? They're starting to see the invisible hand of God being made evident in a very unusual way. And he says, I'll tell you how to live. Verse 19, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. So he's changed his mind. He said, all right, I'm going to let you all go, but one. But as for the rest, you go, go and carry grain for the famine of your household. Joseph has probably considered that if he takes all these boys and sends one back, his father will be grieved and perhaps just from sheer depression will die. On the other hand, he also considers there's a family up there, my family. And if they're going to have food to make it through this famine, it's going to take more than one boy and his little donkey to get enough food up there. And so he releases all of them. He says, but I'm going to keep one of them. So he's, he says, do this and you live. And then verse 20, and he says, and what I want you to do is I want you to bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. He's very clear. It's my way or the highway. All right. There's no bartering here. And they did so. And look at verse 21. This is a dramatic scene. Then they said to one another. Now, mind you. They're speaking Hebrew. Joseph speaks Egyptian. When he speaks to them, he speaks through an interpreter. But they are speaking Hebrew. They do not know Egyptian. And they start saying to one another in the, in the presence of Joseph, listen to this. Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. And yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. The guilt in their conscience is so deep. They realize that indeed, now that this Egyptian says, I fear God, that God's hand is now upon them. There is a day of reckoning and it has occurred. 
and they're talking among themselves. And Reuben, verse 22, answered them saying, Did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. In verse 23, they did not know, however, Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. You see, Joseph used his interpreter. They didn't know that Joseph could hear them in his mother tongue. He listened to their every word. I'm sure there was a sense of relief that there was brokenness and bitterness over their, what they had done. But there's great turmoil. And one of the things that these boys are experiencing is guilt. Let me tell you about guilt. Guilt is meant to drive us to the mercy of God. Now, I know that uh, modern-day psychologists say, oh, no, no, guilt is really bad, and you don't want to do anything that makes you feel guilty, or you don't want to have guilt, and just, just blow it off and blow it away. But guilt is meant us to drive us to the mercy of God. Some of you will remember an event that occurred March 18, 1937, in London, Texas. And that event that I'm referring to is that there was a spark that ignited a, a cloud of natural gas that was in the basement of a schoolhouse in London. And it blew that school to pieces. And in that school were 293 people that perished. Most of them were children. The situation was this. The explosion happened when the the local school board, like all school boards, are thinking, how can we save a little bit of money? Hmm, We need to do something. Costs are rising. We've got to save some money. So they worked out an agreement with the neighbor. uh, There was a neighborhood oil company to actually siphon off their natural gas and actually use it to, for their furnace in the school, and that's how they're going to heat the school. Seemed like a great idea. That was a great idea until there was that explosion. And, you know, with that explosion came kind of a, a bitterness to the whole idea of a boom town. And the only thing that seemed to have come of this, other than a tragedy in a, in a city that never, a little town that never recovered from this, was that the government decided that. Um, Because natural gas is odorless and it is so explosive, from now on there needs to be an odorant that is added to it. I don't know if you know that, but natural gas actually has no odor. But that odorant is supplied, and it was a result of this event that occurred in London, Texas. And what the odorant does is it warns us of danger. And that's what guilt does. If your hand, you feel like the hand of God is heavy upon you, you are aware of your sin Things that you are doing and God says, no, this is not in keeping of holiness. This is despairing. This is keeping you from life. And you feel that guilt. That guilt is meant you to drive you to God. It is to tell you, to point out to you as you experience it, that you need God. You need his forgiveness. You need his life. He's calling you to himself. And he's doing so through the person of Christ. Well, these boys are experiencing the tremendous weight of their guilt. They even, even Reuben says, you know, now comes the reckoning for his blood. Remember when God revealed to Noah, he said, listen, man is made in God's image. You shed man's blood and your blood shall be shed. You kill one, you die. Now, we've got a little mixed up in our justice system here. But God said, you kill one of my people made in my image, you die. That's how it works. They're fully aware of that. That's what Reuben is referencing here. The reckoning for his blood has come. But they didn't understand because here's an interpreter. They hadn't been interpreted. Joseph is hearing everything. And verse 24, the emotion just overcomes him. He turned away from them and wept. It was more than he could take. He could see the breakdown of his brothers. These, his brothers, the very ones that threw him in a pit. And yet the very family that he loved, his family, God's chosen family, 
The emotion overcomes him. He turns away and he starts weeping. But verse 24, but when he had returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. And so what is taking place here now is uh, Joseph has made a decision. He's going to keep one. The guy he keeps is Simeon. Jewish tradition holds that Simeon was actually the the cruelest of the brothers. He was also the oldest one that was there when they sold him into slavery. And so Joseph probably sees him as the one most responsible. He was the oldest one there. Reuben had actually said, I want want to rescue this guy. So Simeon, he keeps. He's going to send the rest of the boys back. He's going to find out if they have regrets or they have repentance. He is going to then also give them another test. Did you see that? He's going to give another test because he restored every man's money in his sack. Well, here they go. Now ten boys are going back. Simeon's in prison. Verse 26, so they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. And then verse 27, as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. No, 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 no. My money is here. I mean, it'd be like the equivalent, like we go to H-E-B and you buy a month's worth of groceries, right? You got your two carts going. You're like, I probably don't qualify for the less than 20 lane, you know, and you finally kind of go in there. You buy all your groceries, you pay cash for it and you get it all loaded up and you're on your way home and you look back there because you're grabbing that bag of cashews in there that you can't wait to get to home to get into. And and you feel around there and There's your $175 worth of groceries right there, uh, money right there in your hand. And you're like, whoa, what happened? Well, the shock would have been far greater because this is money that was used to pay for this grain. And you know what? By having the money, this guy that's in charge, this nobleman, this Egyptian, their brother, he can say, yeah, you are spies. You came here to rip me off and you did. You're going to die. They are totally messed up by this, that no way, what's going on here? They look, he sees the money, and verse 28, then he said to his brothers, my money has been in return, has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack, and their hearts sank, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, and this is what I want you to see, what is this that God has done to us? Elohim. This is the first time that is recorded that the boys reference God. They were wicked, wild. They knew about God. Now they see that God is very involved in their life. And now they're asking, what is God doing to us? They understood themselves now to be in the hand of God. God is now at the forefront of their mind. That's exactly how trials work. That is how when your life has been ripped upside down, God has startled you with some events. You realize I am dealing with God here. No more games, no more Mickey Mouse in life. God is dealing with me and you're out of position to experience grace. Well, that's what's happening here. The boys cannot believe they're in a serious dilemma. So they come home, verse 29, when they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, he spoke harshly with us and he took us for spies of the country. But we said to them, said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no longer alive. And the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. And verse 33, the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, 
By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men as you say that you are. I will give your brother to you and you may trade in the land. Now, they they tell him all they they omit certain details like they were going to be killed they're, you know, they're in prison. They omit some of those things. And I think it's really interesting that even though they said that the Lord of the land spoke harshly to them, they, he says that uh, just leave one of your boys, leave one of these guys with me. OK, and they take Simeon instead of saying that he's incarcerated. It's almost like they presented like, you know, he discovered that we we're really nice guys and he wanted to spend time with all of us. But he just picked one. OK, and so leave that guy. Well, they don't really give him the full picture, but they do tell him. This Lord of the land, he wants to see Benjamin. Well, verse 35. Now it came about that they were emptying their sacks. And behold, every man's bundle of money was in this sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were dismayed. And their father, Jacob, said to them, you. He's speaking right from the heart. You have bereaved me of my children. You have taken away my children. Joseph is no more. You did it. He knows this is just a bunch of lies they'd fed. He's saying they told this guy, the Lord of the land, they're honest men. You honest men. You took my son Joseph from me. He is no more. And Simeon, he's no more. And you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Well, then Reuben, he spoke to his father saying, now listen to this. Whoa, here's Reuben. Talk about a good thinker. All right. You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. But put him in my care and I will return him to you. I mean, what he's saying. I mean, think about it. All your grandparents. What would you do if like, we know if I don't bring this one back, you can kill my two kids. Your grandkids. I mean, come on. You know, I, he's, I mean, could you just see Jacob just looking at Reuben and thinking, son, keep your day job. Don't go into the counseling ministry. All right. What grandparent would say, oh, yeah, that's a really good idea. Yeah, let's kill those. No, 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 no. What are you thinking? Verse 38, Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey, you are taking If harm should come on this journey that you are on, the road that you are on, the journey that you are taking in life, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol, the abode of the dead, and in Sheol in sorrow. And so we have a family, God's chosen family, learning one of life's most critical lessons. And that is this, and I don't want you to miss it. We can trust that God is always working even when we can't see it at the time. That's what they're learning. Jacob is approaching 130 years old. Later on, he's going to give a testimony. He says that his life has been difficult and unpleasant. But he is in the process, as these boys are in the process, though they don't know it at the time, to learn that God is at work. He is fulfilling his will and his word and his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Right now, their life is coming unraveled. And maybe you feel like that. But you need to know that God is at work and we can trust him. 
And God's great faithfulness never changes. Even though we are faithless, he remains faithful. And the promises that God gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are coming to fruition. And the question that we ask ourselves is, how in the world do we live in light of these kind of circumstances when life is so heavy and we are so confused? You know how we do it? I I want you to know this. We find our security in God and in his promises. Let me give you a couple verses you might want to write down. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. And we can really do this. Do you know how? Friends, let me tell you how we can do this. Because of Christ. Remember Jesus said in John 14, verse 1, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. It is the reality of the gospel that you and I have been united with Jesus Christ. He has forgiven us and he has redeemed us. He has given us his spirit. We are alive in him. And you and I, we really can do as the scripture calls for, to trust in him, even when life does not make sense. And God is faithful to his promises. He will work all things together for his good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. If God is for us, who can be against us? And praise God, we have all that we need in him. And without him, we have nothing at all. And so you know what we do? It's like in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we do not lose heart. And though our outer man is decaying, right? Going through a little body breakdown, are you? I mean, you all look good, but though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. So think of it this way. Though it may be difficult to see, God is fulfilling his promises in you and in me. And friends, this is what we must learn when we come to Genesis 42, that we can trust that God is always working, even when we can't see it at the time. And as Joseph said, Do this and live.